Welcome to FEPS Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on feps-europe.eu. Welcome to this new episode of FEPS Talks. I'm David Rinaldi, Director of Studies and Policies at FEPS, the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. And today, for a broad talk on uh, social issues and social policies, uh, we have the pleasure of having with us Professor Bea Cantillon, that is Professor at the University of Antwerp, Hermann Dilek Center for Social Policy. Professor Cantillon, thanks for taking the time and for speaking with our, our audience. Very happy to be with you. The very first question in this uh, particular time has to go almost necessarily towards the pandemic and the crisis that we have, uh, we are passing through let's say, let's, uh, maybe we are approaching a question that comes, you know, uh, from my end, from you, who are a practitioner, an expert, and also um, an analyst of political movements around uh, the, the social policies. Would be whether you have been in this period more uh, worried about the worsening of the inequalities due to the pandemic, because I think that this is, a, you know, a clear uh, thing that we have seen, or if you have instead uh, uh, appreciated the fact that at least from a political viewpoint, now welfare provisions, well-being of people are top in the agenda of policymaking. So do, do we have to worry for the worsening or to be happy that finally they are prioritized? Ah, I think this is an excellent question. Uh, you put it very well, uh, but I'm afraid I can't give an answer to that question. Well, first of all, I would say that the worsening inequalities um, is very worrying. <clears throat> this is certainly what happened in, in the past few months. The question is uh, how this will evolve in, in the future. But inequalities have worsened both within countries and between countries. And well, the divide uh, in Europe um, between the, the wealthier uh, nations and the poor nations, especially in the South, has increased. Uh, we don't have uh, the figures uh, yet, but uh, the, the indications are very clear. Um, so there's a clear worsening of inequalities between countries. And within countries, uh, it is clear what happened is that those who were hit by unemployment and, and temporary unemployment uh, but also those who were uh, mostly hit by the virus itself were uh, lower social classes, lower incomes, um, um, those working in flexible jobs, uh, in, in sectors uh, with no pay, etc., etc. So this is very clear. You are right. Um, there is a positive uh, side, and that is that welfare states reacted uh, very quickly with uh, impressive programs. And uh, we all uh, witnessed uh, the, the importance of social security, uh, social insurances, and, and the importance of the, of the welfare state and the social state as such. And, and also the, the, just the fact that, that social states reacted quickly, this is the positive side. However, the reactions in, in most countries, and we don't have the figures yet, but this is what I observe. Looking at some countries, the, the policy responses were uh, in the first place guided by the idea of supporting middle classes and the lower middle classes. So there were increases in benefit levels, unemployment benefit levels for the temporary unemployed, so the new unemployed, but not for the old unemployed. 
And so the old unemployed day remained with the usual low um, benefit replacement ratios. So the, the picture is mixed. And uh, while it's too early, the, the, the jury is still out. We don't know what really happened. But I think that the, the reactions were quick and very, very strong. But they were not geared in the first place towards the bottom of society, towards um, the, the most vulnerable. Allow me a little bit of a silly exercise because I'll try not exactly to rank the different type of emergencies or different type of inequalities, but I would like to understand from your viewpoint what is more worrisome. What are the trends that you've seen during this, this pandemic? I think for sure, just to list some of them, access and quality of health in some regions of, of Europe, it is different number of beds uh, for uh, intensity care. It's different from country to country, regions to regions. So the capacity somehow of the health sector have been compromised in the past and we see now. So that is you know, probably a problem. Then uh, you mentioned the problem of work, unemployment and incomes, which is you know, another uh, issue or in-work poverty is related, uh, related. Then we also have disruption of education with some of the you know, kids at uh, different level. There, there are also... You know, have difficulties in accessing quality uh, education, either for lack of means or lack of education, serv educational services. Then we also have seen the first time big inequalities in housing that we are all blocked, uh, you know, sometimes polarized, uh, someone with access to the green environmental and uh, pleasant areas, some others not. It's a big, uh, a big, vast amount. Then there is another one that is the gender component of the inequalities with the crisis that is impacting massively the care, the care industry, even violence against women in the, in the household is on the increase. So it's some massive uh, problems that were already there, but have been <laughs> accelerated. Where do you see the more worrisome things or where do you somehow uh, would place the, the, the attention to flip and to change the well-being of people first? but also maybe uh, something that looks beyond the crisis and say, among these trends, what do you think will remain with us? What will be somehow solved? And where, what is the social crisis that will uh, perdure and remain with us even besides mm -hmm. the pandemic? Yes, well, I, I think um, you mentioned several dimensions, rightly so. Ranking, I, I wouldn't start with the ranking because all these dimensions are strongly related with each other. If you think about space, if you think about schools, those affected are low-income households, are those uh, who had and had during the pandemic, but also before, had difficulties to integrate in the labor market. Uh, so people with either unemployed or with bad jobs, badly paid jobs, um, the low skilled and their children. So I would say um, the cleavage that um, exists in society, in post-industrial societies, between the, the poorly skilled and, and, and the highly educated, this cleavage has um, become much more visible and much more painful for those who stay at uh, the bad side of the cleavage. So the, the pandemic uh, certainly has deepened the cleavage and has uh, strengthened the impact 
of housing, education, uh, the impact of labor markets, etc., on the opportunities for those mainly people with low skills. And obviously, uh, women, low-skilled women with children, those were the, the most affected. But I would say uh, it deepened the, the cleavage in, in our society between the high-skilled and the low-skilled, which I call the, the new social question. And, and all the dimensions that you rightly mentioned are closely linked with uh, this um, this divide in, in, in our societies. It's a big polarization, what you are, what, what you are describing, um, and a different way somehow to access different, li- different living standards according to one's education. I think perhaps it's important to underline that access to education, so being high-skilled and low-skilled, it crucially depends from where, what's the family you're born and where's Absolutely. the region you're born. Absolutely. Uh, so and this is, this is a social cleavage. Indeed, it's, it's the, 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 the cleavage between low-skilled and high-skilled. It's a social cleavage because, as, as you said, uh, the type of school is strongly related to, um, to um, the background, family background of children. And so, it's, yes, it's, it's, so, it's, it's so. My question is, you know, straightforward. Uh, then, how to solve this? <laughs> you know, because I suppose you clearly present this as one of the consequences uh, of the pandemic of our social distancing interruption of uh, basically our interruption of our economic uh, system. Uh, but I'm quite sure that also the deep transformations that are enduring in our society and in our uh, economy, I'm thinking about the digitalization, automation, the, the ecological and digital transition, mm-hmm. perhaps even the demographic change, they are also somehow contributing to splitting more uh, the society in the two high skill and low skill. So what, from a viewpoint of the public sector, so type of measure do you see that could contrast uh, this trend or at least alleviate it? Well, alleviate and the classical menu of, of anti-poverty strategies uh, are related with um, all the domains that have been mentioned. It's about employment, it's about education, it's about income support, it's about social social protection, it's about housing, so it's multidimensional. Until large efforts by societies and by welfare states, so that we must redistribute uh, much more than we are doing. Uh, we must invest much more in um, in education, especially for children with with special needs. Uh, we must invest much more in adequate housing. And we must invest much more in jobs for the low-skilled. And we must uh, invest much more in, in social protection, adequate social protection for the unemployed, but also for the sick and, and families with, 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 with children. So it's uh, multidimensional. Um, again, no ranking. Um, they are, all the, these dimensions are equally important. It, it requires a, a huge efforts, even by the most developed and, and richest uh, welfare state in, in, in Europe. I believe, or at least I hope, that um, the, the, the pandemic and what we uh, passed through the, in, the, in the past uh, few months will uh, might be the beginning of what I call a U-turn, uh, changing the direction and doing those things that uh, were impossible in the past or seemed to be impossible in the past. 
Maybe this is a, a good uh, moment to ask you about the European Union intervention in, in the crisis. So, because that is probably one of the moments in which we have seen a little bit of difference from the responses, uh, responses of the past. I'm thinking in particular to the next generation EU, uh, so the, mm -hmm. the entire mm -hmm. uh, recovery strategy, and also to Shure, the instrument, the instrument to support a temporary working scheme. What would be your judgment? What, what do you think is the achievement done there? And perhaps if you can, you know, if we should be satisfied or if there is something that is still maybe lacking in this type of response? Oh, there are many things lacking, but I would say that what has been done in the past few months is really impressive. And this is really an U-turn. If, if you think about uh, policies and, and, and the policy discourse 10 years ago, the financial crisis, Now we are in a totally different political discourse, but also in totally different political action. Obviously, this is a different crisis. This is an exogenous crisis where we cannot blame each other. The blaming was uh, the big problem uh, when action has been taken in the aftermath of, of the financial crisis. Um, And so this crisis, in, in, in that sense, is, it's easier to, to, to handle from a, a European perspective. It's easier to, to raise um, the issue of solidarity between those uh, most, or between those less hit by the crisis and those most hit by the crisis. For instance, if you take sure, this is the first time in European history that the EU is, is, is supporting national social security systems. It's the first time in, in European history. It's, and so this, this is really impressive. And for me, this, this is really a U-turn. Uh, the question now is how this um, will be taken um, up in, in, in the future. It might become other European unemployment reinsurance system. It might, this might be the beginning of European um, social security system um, with real solidaristic mechanisms uh, behind it. This is good because you, you turn my pessimism or criticism into a positive uh, outlook. So you see it as a first step for uh, something stronger that goes in the direction of equipping Europe with a serious uh, counter-cyclical tool, a st stabilization that can work both as a fiscal uh, uh, buffer for member states and, uh, and for individuals. Because actually, from my end, and I want to play here a little bit of the devil's advocate, it is true we had a new turn, so they came together. But still, my feeling is that we should not really sell this or tell to ourselves that this is uh, about solidarity. Because the redistributive component in next generation EU and the redistributive component of Shure, they are pretty limited. So we, we can be happy that there is more, I would say, European integration. So there is a, a new instruments uh, in the hand of the European policymaking. But still, Shure is 100% loans. So there is no, you know, each state receives now, so it's, it's good. But then they have, you have to give back to the European budget. Next generation EU as well, there's a 
big component is in loans and also some countries they've negotiated rebates the so-called frugal so they are contributing less to the european uh, and for instance countries like italy that they are receiving quite a lot but they are also paying <laughs> quite a lot so the even even there the the solidarity component is somehow missing so what where we can find it where how how to expect or how to convince member states that is actually in the interest of the i don't know let me say the the dutch people that there is low unemployment in spain and italy or you know from a maybe from a market viewpoint from an emotional viewpoint how can we deliver the fact that solidarity makes us all stronger yeah so you're right uh, this is um the more pessimistic appreciation of, of these new uh, instruments. Yes, you're right. Uh, these are not uh, instruments by which um, we redistribute from the rich countries to the poor countries. Although helping um, the poor countries with loans is also, is also solidarity. So it, I would say the element of solidarity is not very strong, but it's also not, not, not totally absent. Moreover, uh, what in my view is important is the fact that the, the next generation EU, it's the, the relations with, with conditions. So um, the fact that this is related, these loans are related to climate change policies. I think this is really very important. And this is uh, really helping uh, national politicians to redesign policies and to, to, to move in, in the direction of, of climate transition. So I think here the, the EU is, is really taking um, an, an, important, an important role. Um, yes, then the, the question is whether these movements are leading towards um, a greater solidarity within the union. And well, I would say I'm optimistic. I would say that this, um, this is next step. We are just taking a next step. Um, and a next step in the right direction. So that's, um, I would say that's a um, positive account. And you are very right when you say, well, we need to see why solidarity is important. Also for those who have to pay. And uh, this is only visible at the moment of deep crises. And this is what happened in, in the past few months. And so the question is what will happen in, in the future. I do believe that the, the, the impact of the pandemic in the future will be very big. Um, there are, there are two, two different views. There are those who uh, think that once um, the health measures stop, then the economy will recover very quickly and we will have uh, high economic growth and we will forget about uh, all the, the bad things of the past few months uh, very quickly. This is one view. Um, I don't think that this will happen uh, because the cleavage within societies um, has been deepened so far that this will have consequences. The divide between Northern European countries and Southern European countries has, has been deepened and this will, will not disappear in the, in the near future. We don't know what will happen in, in, in the coming months, but I, I'm afraid that we will face um, difficult times, very difficult times. 
and that solidarity will be part of, of the answers of, of, of the problems that uh, we were facing. In this case, perhaps I, I can bring a little bit of hope then, because what we see, uh, you as an observer can certainly comment on that, about the renewed interest and commitment of, of European policymakers, European leaders towards, if you want, social Europe, as we call it, you have written extensively, FAPS is a long track list of work um, and, and publications on, on the topic. There is exactly this, you know, besides being a transfer of social policies at the European level, that's not the point. The idea is that Europe is committed to deliver uh, high-level living standards um, compatible with the, with, the, with the European model everywhere for everybody. In, uh, in Europe, that is the mission for social Europe. Then how to how to organize it? It's another matter. But there is somehow the feeling of this renewed spirit towards social outcomes for mm-hmm. for Europe. Uh, you're very familiar with the European pillar of, of social rights. The Commission has recently come up with a, an action plan, specific targets, and just at the beginning of the of May. Uh, EU leaders came together in Porto for a big declaration, also renewing the the need to work together to, towards better, uh, improved social outcomes. So is this uh, somehow a new political uh, wave that can help us attaining a more social Europe? Uh, do you see that feasible politically? And in case where um, somehow what in which direction you would see more hope? Okay, I, I think that that um, the Porto summit and the Porto commitment that has been uh, endorsed by all European institutions and the social partners, which is as such important, that this is um, an important next step. I I wouldn't say that this is a new wave uh, in the sense that I do believe that uh, the the socialization of of Europe has, well, it started in in 2000 with the Lisbon strategy and then moved forward. It is the social agenda is is going more and more into the center of the, the European political agenda, and so Lisbon strategy. This was um, yes, it was the, the convergence uh, towards uh, broadly defined goals uh, at a very high abstract level. Um, the eradication of poverty. This was two thousand. Okay, these were goals, but uh, without any um, mentioning of the kind of policies that should be developed in order to reach these goals. Um, the same for the EU twenty twenty strategy. With goals, the, the goals were were more concrete and uh, and also less ambitious, which was wise. But again, the, the EU twenty twenty strategy it was about convergence around goals without the menu of policy measures needed in order to 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 get there. The European pillar of social rights. This can be read as 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 a menu, as a menu how to reach more social inclusion, how to reach. Um, the, the, the ambitious goal, uh, Lisbon goal, eradication of poverty. Uh, the menu, what is the menu? Minimum wages, adequate minimum wages, adequate minimum income, 
social protection, um, adequate pension, childcare, parental leave, name it. So these are the, the principles and the rights that are defined in the European Pillar of Social Now with the European Pillar of Social Rights Action Plan, this is going further into the details. It's defining more in details which kind of policies uh, should be developed in order to, to move forward. And it's also defining um, what member states have to do together. So I think this Porto Summit was important and, and, and the commitment that has been signed uh, in Porto is important for two reasons. First, because it's it's taking further the process of the so- socialization, the European social agenda, make it more concrete. And secondly, because uh, it has been endorsed by Europe- all the European institutions, European Parliament, the, the Council, the Commission, and the social partners, which is um, which is important and hopeful. My very last question on a specific one of the specific measures that you mentioned because uh, the commission has been active besides Schule, uh, the child guarantee uh, work uh, working life balanced uh, predictable working conditions uh, but the adequate minimum wages is perhaps one of the most uh, challenging uh, matters because it's challenging because it's not sure whether there is a Euro strong European competence but it is also challenging because it, it goes exactly in one of the cleavages north south uh, east east that you know creates the big uh, divergence so are you hopeful that maybe um, politicians will come together to you know pass a measure that improves uh, wages uh, in uh, in mm-hmm. different countries i i really hope that this will be successful because as you said um The minimum wages is important uh, both for the cohesion within the union and for the uh, protection of the low-skilled and all those who are left behind in the knowledge economy and in the global knowledge economy. And the minimum wages is, is laying well, the floor of the whole welfare state. Uh, without uh, adequate wages, no adequate pension, no adequate social uh, social assistance, no adequate uh, unemployment benefits, etc. So th- this is this is the floor of of the all architecture of, of the welfare state. So I think it's key. The question is whether uh, this will be successful. Uh, this at this moment, I think it's very difficult to answer that question. There are two big problems. The first problem uh, is. Uh, related to the, to the rich countries with high minimum wages, minimum wages that are defined by social partners, not by law. So these countries are not very enthusiastic. Uh, the poor countries are not very enthusiastic because it's a threat for their competitive advantage of low wages. So that's that's um, remains to be seen. And the business Europe is strongly uh, against. On the other hand, the commission is doing everything um, they can in order to, to, to get this through. Obviously, also, the, this is part of the problem, this is directive. So it's not the, the minimum income protection. Uh, this is really a directive. So um, it is very ambitious. But, uh, well, let's see. For me, as an economist, the, the important point uh, to make, somehow the intellectual battle 
to win is to recognize that despite what they sold us in the past, that there is a trade-off between the wages and the level of employment so that we can't raise the wages because otherwise we have to accept unemployment. Data is not showing this. The current experience is not showing this. So the two things, uh, protection of, uh, protection of uh, workers so with legislation and wages are not in contradictions with high level rate of, uh, of employment uh, where minimum wage in Germany is there. So we have to really reject on the grounds of you know, uh, sound economic analysis, this fake truth that they've been selling us. And I would like to thank you a lot for the analysis and the inputs you provided us to, today. We hope to remain uh, in, in touch with you. Thanks a lot, Professor Cantillon. And thanks to all of you that have been listening to this episode of FEPS Talks. Thank you very much. Thank you for your attention. If you found our conversation interesting, do not hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag FEPSTalks. More is yet to come. Stay tuned.